love worshiping God with you. I love worshiping God with I you. I love worshiping God with you. We all need encouragement. Hopefully you come to church for that encouragement. Home fellowship groups, you hope you get encouragement, hope you get hope. We need encouragement. We live in difficult times. A lot of bad news out there. We all need encouragement to continue in the faith, especially during stressful times. Paul is writing to Timothy to strengthen his faith in stressful times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to live in these times, that we get to be a light for you and salt. We thank you for this word tonight. We pray that this word would live in us, that it would be like food to us, that we would eat your word, it would be nourishing. It would help us to realize that you are God, we are not, that we need you, and we love you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second letter to Timothy we're reading tonight. Second letter to Timothy. And as I said, it's an encouraging letter to make Timothy aware of life as a disciple, but more importantly, life as a leader, a leader in the church. Paul's passing it on to Timothy. Paul's encouraging Timothy not to be ashamed, but to use the spiritual gifts that have been given to him. In chapter 3, Paul wants to tell Timothy and us what life will be like in the last days. In the last days. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to understand that we are in the last days. That there are difficult times coming. People sometimes speak of the last days as something yet to come in the future. But we believe that in Scripture, the last days refer to the age of Christ and after. So, Paul could tell Timothy that we are in the last days. Paul opens up his book to the Hebrews by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, Paul says it to the Hebrews, in these last days, he meant in present tense, at that time, Paul believed they were in the last days. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir to all things, through whom he also created the world. So when Paul tells Timothy about trouble in the last days, he's not pointing to something 2,000 years away. He's not pointing to our time. Rather, Timothy was already living in the, past, in the last days. We continue to live in the last days, and we will remain in the last days until the return of Jesus. We need to remember that as we read Scripture, there aren't some divided up time pieces that's not so clear. As you know, when you read Revelation, we're not sure. But this is Paul's point. And what's important is that we get to the point. The point is it's going to be hard to live as a Christian during last days. In every age, it's not going to be comfortable or easy. This is not some kind of free ride we get as being a Christian. I always wonder when people become a Christian, do they really know what what's, they're headed for? Because it's not all joy and love and lollipops. 
there are terrible times for those trying to follow Jesus. The fact is, my son, who's a pastor, he might die in prison. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. His son, Micah, or Joey, or Theo, or Abel, if they become pastors, I always forget I have that many grandchildren, (laughs) that they might die on the street. Who knows? They might die in some war in the future. I don't know. But we know that these are last days, and we're in it. Jesus himself tells us not to worry about when the last days will be. So it's not something that we should always contemplate and be filled with fear. In fact, the book of Revelation is a book of hope. It talks about the hope of the coming of Christ. The purpose of Revelation is to give us hope, not fear. So why is it going to be so hard for times of the people of God? And Paul explains this in 2 Timothy, if you could turn to chapter 3. He starts off in chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, by saying that people will be committing all kinds of unbelievable sins and it will be a time of complete and utter selfishness. It will be horrible. It would be like living in hell. I don't remember where I was in Europe, but I was at some, some place, some art museum or somewhere, and I was sitting in a hall looking at these pictures, and I realized that what I was looking at were two identical pictures. Like, I thought, well, that's odd. Why are there two identical pictures next to each other? In one of the pictures, I looked more closely at it, and it was a picture depicting what's called the allegory of the long forks. I don't know if you know what that that is, the allegory of the long forks. The first painting was that of a banquet scene. People at this beautiful banquet, the table is filled with food, and the dinner guests are sitting around a large table, and everyone at the dinner table looked like they were starving. They were skin and bones. You could see their emaciated bodies, and they were each holding these long forks, and they were stabbing the food in the middle of the table, and they couldn't get the food into their mouths. They kept trying to bend the fork to get the food in their mouth, and they couldn't do it. And you could see their bodies. It looked like a picture of hell. It was starvation, suffering, pain. And then right next to that painting was an identical painting. But the second painting was that of this very same banquet scene, same people. The dinner guests were sitting around this large table of delicious food. It was like a beautiful banquet, and everyone at the dinner table looked like they were healthy. They were all fat, and they were all happy. They were joyful. And they were holding the same long forks. The difference was they were stabbing the food and feeding each other. It was a picture of heaven. It's utter and complete selfishness versus living for one another and serving and feeding one another. It's called the allegory of the long forks. And it came to mind as I was reading this section of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at the descriptions that Paul speaks about these false followers of Jesus. He describes them as lovers of themselves. They claim to love God, but they don't. 
They only love themselves. They love money. They are hoarders. They're proud. They're boastful. They're arrogant. They're abusive and demeaning. They're disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They are heartless. They are unappeasable. They're unforgiving. They are slanderers. They are without self-control. They are brutal and cruel. They do not love good. They betray their friends. They are rash. They are reckless. They are puffed up with pride. They love pleasure. They act religious, having an appearance of devotion to God. But look at what Paul says in verse 5. He wants us to avoid such people. That is, we even treat them worse than we would treat a sinner, a blatant sinner who doesn't even claim to know God. There's a difference here. Timothy, you need to avoid people who are fake Christians. Why should they be avoided? The answer is that they're dangerous. Fake Christians are actually more dangerous than blatant sinners. Verses 6 through 9 reveal why they are dangerous. In verse 6, we see that they take advantage of people. They worm their way into relationships and homes, and they target weak and vulnerable people, and they're weighed down by their sins, and they take full advantage of them. This is even more beyond, like I said, than just blatant sinning. This is evil. This is premeditated evil. Avoid these people because they are dangerous. They will make their way into your life, and they take advantage of you. They are religious Pharisees. This is what the problem was with the leaven of the Pharisees when Jesus said his hypocrisy. It's what, drives, it's what drives God crazy, this type of Phariseeism. In verse 7, Paul stops and he warns about these who are being taken advantage of. Paul says that they're always learning, but they're never able to draw a conclusion or to take a stand on the Scriptures. Their knowledge does them no good. They are always learning and they're never doing. They're learning, learning, learning and never doing anything with their faith. Paul says that false followers are not doers of the word. They are hearers only. They listen and listen, but it never changes them. It never causes them to act on what they've heard. But then he returns to the description of people who need to be avoided. And in verse 8, there's this curious couple that Paul talks about, Janus and Jambres. And you're like, well, who are these people? They're magicians. These are probably the magicians that were in Pharaoh's court that could duplicate the creation of a snake out of a pole, out of a rod. They could make a snake out of it. Well, isn't that great? And, but then what happened, you remember the story, Moses and Aaron, our snake, ate their snakes. <laughs> it was awesome. But that's just like who these people are. They're, they're like magicians. They can do things that make you think they know God, that they're even close to God. And he notes that they ultimately oppose the truth. They are corrupted in mind and worthless in their faith. But there's something interesting about these false followers that Paul describes in verse 9. Paul says, you know what? They don't get very far because their folly becomes plain to everyone. Everyone can see through it. The behaviors that are listed in verses 2 to 5 eventually come out. The consequences of these behaviors also become evident. Your life is going to blow up if you live this way. 
It's awful. But you, Timothy, my son, you, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And how did, how did Paul teach young Timothy to be strong? Well, he, he chose strong professions. And if you go back to chapter 2, look at the three kinds of people that Paul says to, to model yourself after. Timothy, I want you to study these three groups. I want you to study soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Learn from them. Let's study them. Let's reflect upon them and their way of life. Let's take a moment to do exactly what Paul is asking Timothy to do. Let's just take this moment and say, what does a Christian soldier look like? I mean, we know the song, Onward, Christian soldiers. You just want to go for it when the song starts. We are Christian soldiers. What a great thing to talk about on Veterans Day. We are Christian soldiers. We're in the war. We're in the army. We're in God's army. I'm in the Lord's army. Remember that one, Brooke? I like that one. How come, Jake, how come you don't do that one? Where's Jake? Jake, Jake, you need to do that one. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Bless you. We are Christian soldiers. My dad was a soldier. It's good to remember him today. It's good to remember our veterans. Raise your hand if you're a veteran. Is there a veteran in here? Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Misa, thank you, the veteran. Any other veterans? Thank you, veterans. Also interesting is my dad was a, was a farmer. And my dad was an athlete. So I know a little bit about these three things. Soldier. Can we ponder? Can we reflect? Timothy tells Paul to reflect on this. Reflect on being a Christian soldier. We are Christian soldiers. We have put on Jesus Christ as our uniform. We wear Jesus Christ. We are warriors and we are members of the church of Jesus Christ, our commander. We know how to follow his command. We hear his voice. We do his voice. Our commander calls us to make disciples of Jesus Christ in planting new churches for the transformation of our city, for the transformation of the world. We give our mission of love first place in our lives. We are soldiers. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. We will never accept defeat. Our enemy has already been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. We will never quit. We are a disciplined soldier. We are physically and mentally fit. We are trained. We are proficient in our tasks and in our skills. We always maintain our sword and our shield, which is the word of God. We put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against the devil. We stand ready to be deployed by the Holy Spirit to engage and destroy the enemies of Jesus, Satan and his demons. We destroy them in close combat on our knees in prayer. We are the guardians of the Christian life. 
Paul, interestingly enough, writes to the church at Ephesus, of which Timothy is the pastor, about the whole armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and put on the helmet of salvation which, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Are you deployed? Are you deployed? Do you know the objective? Who wants to enlist? Who wants to join that group? I do. You joined when you repented. You joined at your baptism. You joined when you said yes to the grace of Jesus Christ coming into your life, forgiving you of all your sins. You were born again as a child of God. You were born again to be a soldier, a soldier in the Lord's army. Next, Paul instructs us to look at an athlete. An athlete is not crowned, he says, unless he competes according to the rules. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Interesting word in that word for training. When Paul says, train yourself for godliness, the Greek word there is gumnazi. Gumnazi, it's where we get the word gymnasium from. It's interesting. We train. We gumnazi. Paul and Timothy understood the value of physical exercise. I mean, they were in Ephesus. They were in the Greek culture. They knew all about the physical trainers down at the stadium, training wrestlers and gladiators. It was all part of their life together. The comparison between physical and spiritual proves to be a very workable analogy. Paul understood that we must train wisely as well as intensely for spiritual growth. Our training exercises include, but not limited to, Bible study, prayer, fasting, service, generosity. This is what we do in the Christian gymnasium. We compete and we receive the victor's crown. Training in godliness according to the rules holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. And I started thinking about being an athlete. 
what it means to be a Christian athlete. And all of a sudden, I'm a little slow at times, but all of a sudden I reminded, hey, there's this group called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'm going to go to their website. And this is their creed. This is their motto. Listen to this as a Christian athlete. Fellowship of Christian Athlete Creed. I am a Christian first and last. I am created in the likeness of God Almighty to bring him glory. I am a member of Team Jesus. I am a competitor now and forever. I am made to strive, to strain, to stretch, and to succeed in the arena of competition. I face my challenger with the face of Christ. I do not trust in myself. I do not boast in my abilities or believe in my own strength. I rely on the power of God. I compete for the pleasure of my Heavenly Father, the honor of Christ, and the reputation of the Holy Spirit. My attitude on and off the field is above reproach. My conduct beyond criticism. Whether I am preparing, practicing, or playing, I submit to God's authority and those he has put over me. I respect my coaches, officials, teammates, and competitors out of respect for the Lord. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. I protect it from within and without. Nothing enters my body that does not honor the, honor the living God. My sweat is an offering to my master. My soreness is a sacrifice to my Savior. I give my all, all of the time. I do not give up. I do not give in. I do not give out. I am the Lord's warrior, a competitor by conviction and a disciple of determination. I am confident beyond reason because my confidence lies in Jesus Christ and the results of my efforts must result in his glory. Wow! <laughs> I want to do that. But I'm old. I don't feel like I can be an athlete. But I'm going to do that. And I'm going to work to do that. And then Paul instructs us to look at a farmer. A farmer. Soldier, athlete, and a farmer. He said it's hard. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. All right, well, we're farmers. Are we farmers? What, who, what are our crops? You know what crops are? People. Crops are people. We grow people around here. That's what we do. We can take people with us to heaven. It's the only thing you can take with you to heaven is people. Did you know that? All, this, all the stuff in your house, it's not going with you. People sitting next to you, they're going to be there. We're going to be there. Jesus said, look at, look at the farmer. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The farmers are few, Jesus is saying. We need more farmers. We need to pray for more farmers. We need workers in the field to sign up and say, I want to be a farmer. But I'm a city boy. I don't know anything about farming. I grew up in a city. I was 13 years old when I figured out that pickles came from cucumbers. I had no clue. I really had no idea what farmers did, even though my dad was a farmer. But I know I figured something out. Did you know that every county in Kentucky has what's called a county extension agent? Did you know that? It's pretty awesome. 
Did you know that you can call up the county extension office and ask them how to be a farmer? I did that. My friend Larry was the county extension agent. I said, Larry, what do I need to know to be a farmer? Are you ready for this? You might want to write this down. Write these down if you want to be a farmer. This is what my county extension agent told me. He said, number one, you've got to find some land. Get some ground. Rent it, buy it, borrow it. You can't be a farmer without some land. So I wrote that down. And I realized, you know what? Jesus calls people's hearts soil. He calls us land, our hearts. You can't be a farmer in the spiritual realm without finding and getting some, into some people's hearts, loving them. You start to tap into the dirt. You start to tap into the pH of the soil when you start loving people and their hearts, who they are. Number two, my extension agent tells me, decide what you want to grow. Figure out what the market is for your crop. It's interesting. Thought about that. Jesus said, I want men and women, boys and girls, every human being on this planet to be with me, to believe in me. I want them to be with me where I am, he said, to see my glory, the glory the Father has given me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants to be in everyone. We want to grow full-time followers of Jesus. Amen? Number three, my county extension agent says, decide when you want to start. You've got to know something about the seasons of our county. Decide when you want to start. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in the evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. I'm telling you, we start today. I don't care what we've done in the past, we start today. That's when we want to start. We want to start right now, today. That's what scripture would tell us. Number four. My county extension agent says, lay out your field design. Lay out your planting design. Okay. Well, let's think of what we have. We've got a church. We've got buildings. We've got land. We've got pastors. We've got elders. We've got fellowship groups. We've got worship. We've got prayer. We have outreach. We've got guitars. We've got pianos. We have prayer groups. We have meetings. We have dinners. We have mission groups. We have budgets. We have co-op, we have men's and women's meetings, we have college ministry. Well, what is all this for? It's for people. It's for people. It's for people. Number five. The county extension agent says, oh, you got to conduct a soil test. 
Interestingly enough, Jesus teaches us that there's four types of soil. There's fertile, there's hard, there's weedy thorns, and there's rocky soil. Today we recognize chemical deficiencies in the soil. Proper pH is needed. Do we add lime or do we leave it as it is? If we conducted soil tests on our hearts, what would Jesus find? Maybe we need miracle grow. <laughs> miracle grow, that's the answer. What would Jesus find when he does a soil test? Hardness, rocks, weeds, chemical imbalance, or fertile soil. What a great thing to do to be a church that could keep conducting soil tests, finding out, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Number six, he said you're going to have to get some materials that are necessary for farming. You need seedlings, young plants, seeds, fertilizer, machinery, all the input to raise a crop. We need the word of God in prayer. We need the word of God in prayer. I remembered a poem that my dad, it wasn't really a poem, it was a kind of a recitation that Paul Harvey gave. You remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey, was that in the 1800s? Paul Harvey. I just remember my dad had this, this thing. He liked it. So in honor of my dad, I'm going to read about a farmer. Paul Harvey wrote this. He says, And on the eighth day, on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So he made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk the cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at the meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to rustle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, and then come home hungry. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and then dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make a harness out of a hay wire, feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday at noon, and then with pain from his tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride in the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds, and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place, neighbor's house. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to tame lambs and wean pigs and tend the milk comb pullets, who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners 
somebody to seed and weed and feed and breed and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and replenish the self-feeder and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who would bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. Paul wanted us to look at soldiers and athletes and farmers. So now go to chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting with verse 14. Well, what do we do? We live in the last days. What should, what should we do? How should we live? He says that we need to continue in the teachings that we have heard and learned. We need to depend on the teachings from the scriptures. As we walk through difficult times, we need to get closer and closer, the harder it gets, to the word of God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do not be shaken by those who are false. Do not give up on your faith because of the false faith of others. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in the teachings from the sacred writings. It is the teachings from the sacred writings that will make you wise for salvation. Please consider that when Paul writes to Timothy, the sacred writings would have been the Hebrew scriptures. The sacred writings at this point in history would have been Genesis through Malachi. It's what we would call the Old Testament. Paul says these books are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. That's interesting. Every book in the Old Testament does not just tell you interesting stories about people in the, in the past or in Israel. And really, who cares where the Philistines came from? But we read the Old Testament to find out all of the blood thread that points to Jesus. All of the strings through the Old Testament that we can follow and find Jesus. On every page of the Old Testament, you can find Jesus. It's amazing. These 39 books are so frequently neglected, but they have so much saving power. That's what Paul was talking about. Look at verse 16. Paul waxes eloquent here. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out here means inspired. Every word from every book has come out from God's mouth and the people of God carried by the Holy Spirit, like the apostles and prophets who wrote them down. All of God's word is beneficial for teaching, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. When we come to the word of God, this is what we're looking at. We are reading it to be taught, to be rebuked, to be corrected, and to be trained in righteousness. The word of God teaches us. The word exposes our sins. The word corrects our direction. The word trains us in right living. This is the purpose 
so that we can be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul tells Timothy earlier that we are to cleanse ourselves so that we can be an instrument for honorable use, set apart, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work, for every time we go out as a soldier, every time we go as an athlete, every time we go out as a farmer, we go with God and with God's word. This way, this preparation happens by us knowing the scriptures. That is the answer. It seems so simple. It doesn't seem magical enough, as in Janice and Jambres. But the way for us is to stand firm during difficult times, dealing with the hurt. The way for us to figure out false followers and maintain faith while being persecuted for living a godly life is to continue in and firmly believe the sacred scriptures that will make us wise for salvation. These scriptures are from God's mouth and it makes us complete. Nothing else works. We sometimes try to energize our faith by doing just about anything and everything else except spending time in God's word and holding on to the teachings. We have a fast coming up. I hope your fast will be from, from all entertainment, anything that would take your mind off of the word of God. Can we work into this fast, diving into scripture, just plowing into it? How are we to be strong in the faith during these last days? How do we maintain faith during difficult times? We ground our lives in God's word. There's no other answer. It is our ticket. It's our passport. It's everything. God's word flowing through our hearts like oxygen in our lungs so that we can be found faithful and approved by God. Wow. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living, it's breathing. We thank you that it makes our hearts beat. It, it's, it's everything. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word. You are the one. We worship you. We thank you again for breathing, for inspiring your word that we have answers even in the difficult times, even when we feel so lost. We thank you, Lord. Jesus, you are our word. You are the word of God. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Bill. Um, praise the Lord. I mean, um, I, hope, I hope you understand the privilege it is to be able to hear uh, from Bill Hughes when he teaches uh, to us. An amazing man of God, and every time he speaks, 
I, I just want it to soak in uh, to my soul. So thanks, Bill, um, for leading us through Second um, Timothy. Um, so we, you know, <laughs> it's funny to announce the, the fast. Uh, I want to say that this is the most exciting time of the year for me, because it is, and it should be for you too, but it is also the most terrifying part of the year for me, and it may be for you too, because uh, fasting uh, is not an easy thing to do. It hurts uh, my flesh when I do it. Uh, but I wanna, we're going to kind of end, end the night talking about the fast. So our fast, our corporate fast, is beginning this week, this Wednesday night uh, after supper. We'll uh, start the fast, and then we're going to end by breaking it together uh, Saturday night uh, when we come together. So it's going to be the typical schedule again this week. Let me tell you a little bit about the times. So um, on Thursday morning and Friday morning, we will all be able to get together with all three CF churches. Uh, and that will be from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. And that will be a time of prayer. Uh, and it will be at the Living Hope building. Okay, so that is Ben's church right now. Yeah, so that's where ECF meets. So if you can make it in the mornings, that would be a great time. And then Thursday evening at the JCF building. LCF is going to get together, and we're going to pray together at 7 o'clock at the JCF building, okay? So if you are a member of this church, I want to strongly encourage you to make it that night. You'll still have a little energy in you. You'll still be feeling okay. Uh, and then Friday evening at Anchor Baptist, and this is where, if you've ever met with Trinity, uh, that's where they meet. Where all of the churches are going to meet together Friday night to pray together that night. And then Saturday night, here at King's Church, all three churches are going to come together uh, to break the fast together. It'll be a short service, but we'll meet together and break the fast together. Uh, and then there'll be some forthcoming information about eating together uh, to break the fast, okay? So, this is our corporate fast. I wanted to encourage you tonight as we close down. We're going we're gonna to close with a song um, but this is an is, is a extremely significant time for us as a church. Um, and so the purpose of this time is that we would um, sacrifice something that nourishes our body, food, uh, and that we would set apart this time to seek the Lord and to cry out to him. Uh, we, we've been talking about prayer lately a lot. And... Um, we are desperate for God, individually and corporately. We, we are helpless without his direction in our life. He is our shepherd. We need him to come and lead this flock. This has been going on for many, many years. This church has taken this time every year to cry out to God together because we need him. And it has historically been an amazing time where the Spirit of God begins to wash away all of the distractions that are in our lives individually, but also as a church, and he brings clarity to his word. He brings clarity to our spirits and to our souls, and our intention is to seek God for vision. We believe that where there is no vision, the people perish. And so we, we need to cry out to God together as a group of people that he would give us vision for the next year. And the expectation is that you, 
and you and you and each member of this church would hear from God, that he would speak deep into our souls about who we are, what he's doing in us, and what he has for us in the coming year, okay? So tonight, we're going to close in a song, and I know sometimes I find myself, the fast starts on Wednesday, and I show up Wednesday night uh, at the prayer meeting, Uh, I begin my fast and have to just kind of like frantically figure out what am I doing, why am I doing this, Uh, what am I going to focus on, Uh, and and kind of orient myself on Wednesday. I want to do that tonight. I don't know if you came ready to do that, but I want to do it tonight. Uh, and so we are gonna, we're going to sing a song. And I want to ask you to just kind of set your heart on the Lord and set your heart on the fast, set your heart on your family, set your heart on this church, uh, and begin to commit to God uh, and, and listen to God about what you're going to be praying about. And what I wanted to do is I want to open up the front here, okay? And if you would, I want you to come down up front and sit before the Lord as we worship and begin to make a declaration in your heart what you're going to be doing during the fast, okay? Uh, The standard fast uh, protocol, I guess, would be no food, uh, no water. No, we do, would be no food for the three days. Uh, But, um, and usually a lot of people do no entertainment, uh, no, um, you know, secular music, um, but uh, there's all kind of variations on that. Some people have medical stuff going on. Uh, some people have never done three days of a fast before. And so I, I would ask you tonight to kind of set in your heart what it is you're going to commit before the Lord, how you're going to pull yourself away from your flesh, away from media, away from the noise of the world, and make that commitment tonight uh, and just meet with the Lord and begin to set your heart on him. Amen? Does that make Amen. sense? Yes? Amen. You got to, when I ask a question, you have to answer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Amen. Okay, great. It's really because I really don't know how clear I am up here. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying or not. All right, well, can you um, lead us in a song and we'll worship together? Uh, and then, yeah, if you want to come up front, uh, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, come up front and just begin to set your heart on the Lord and the fast for this year. Let me open us in prayer as we begin to uh, worship tonight. Go ahead and stand up. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that you haven't left us um, alone uh, in the midst of a culture that is far from you, God, but you draw near to us with your word, God, that your word is a light to us in a dark place. Um, And God, we just ask, Lord, as we begin to move towards the fast this year, God, that you would pour out your word into our hearts, God. Lord, we want you to inspire and anoint and bless the work of your people. And so, God, tonight, I just pray that you would help us to uh, begin to quiet our spirits um, from the noise of the world, uh, from the noise of our fears uh, and our anxieties um, and our selfish pursuits, God. And Lord, tonight, you'd begin to speak to our hearts, Father God. Uh, You would begin to speak eternity to us, God. 
Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would give us guidance on how to seek your face and draw near to you in this time, God. And so now, God, we just commit this time to you, um, and we say, come lead your people, God, in Jesus' name.